Job chapter 40, we'll begin with the first five verses. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. In chapter 40, the Lord challenges Job to respond to him. And he will do exactly that in verse 7 when he says, Now prepare yourself like a man, and I'm going to question you, and you will answer me. The Lord begins with a series of questions about creation. He did that back in chapter 38. Creatures at the end of chapter 38 and 39. In chapter 40, we're met with a brief description of Job's reaction in verses 1 through 5. And the Lord confronts Job and Job's confession is marked by the simple words, I am nothing. How can I find the answers? I'm going to cover my mouth and remain silent. The Lord asks a series of questions that reveal God's wisdom and power. And the Lord will ask about his ability to capture and control two fearful creatures. Behemoth in chapter 40 verses 15 through 24. And then in the next chapter he's going to talk about a strange creature whose name is Leviathan in chapter 41 verses 1 through 34. And Bible scholars are sharply divided over the identity Of these two creatures. Many Bible scholars think that Behemoth is of all things a hippopotamus. And that Leviathan is a crocodile. But the chapters ask the broad questions to Job. Can you explain God's creation in chapter 38? Can you understand God's creatures in chapter 39? Can you subdue and control God's creation In chapter 40. And so in chapter 40 the Lord is going to challenge Job. And he's going to create, if you will, a kind of an environment where he says, Okay Job, you want to question me? You want to be in charge of your own life? You want to be a redeemer and a mediator and you want to make your way? Then let's see if you have what it takes. And it begins with a rebuke. Look at verse 1 again. Moreover, Jehovah, that's how it's translated, but it's the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. The word contend means to bring a suit. The word contend is actually a legal term in the Hebrew language, which means to make an accusation In a court, expecting a verdict. It's the same word that's used in chapter 9, verse 3. So who is Job to find fault with God, he's basically saying. Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? And remember, a fault finder, or the one who contends, or actually rebukes at the end of verse 2, he who rebukes God... 
It means to reproach or to scorn or to censor. It's related to the Hebrew word which means to admonish or correct. And this is very interesting. Because we live in a world where scholars and critics and pundits and philosophers would answer this verse with, of course we can contend and correct the Almighty. Of course we can question the existence of God, the goodness of God, the power of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. All you have to do is live for one day on this planet and interact with the people on this planet and ask them questions about God and you're going to hear invariably these words come out of somebody's mouth. You know what kind of God I believe in? And of course you answer, no, tell me, what kind of a God is it that you believe in? And as the conversation continues, you begin to understand that the God that they believe in isn't the God of the Bible. It isn't the God who reveals himself in the Bible. It's a God who's the God of their imagination. Do you remember what else Job said about God? Earlier in the book, Job describes God as skillful and knowledgeable and powerful and good. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that you probably have family and friends and neighbors and people that you grew up with and people that you still continue to grow with who, who when you ask them about God and you say to them, what kind of a God is God? And they'll talk about the goodness of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. And they'll talk about the kind of God who's always kind. He's never judgmental. And, and he, he regards every single person exactly the same way. And he doesn't deal with the problem of wickedness or evil or sin. And yes, God seems to allow suffering and, and sometimes he seems unfair. Job believes that in some way, God must be deficient or inadequate or incompetent. Because why else would he say, help me understand what's happening to me? Why did you let this happen to me? And it's interesting to me how careless people are with the God of the Bible. It's interesting but frightening. We seem to have lost a reverence for, for God. We, to remember that, he's, that when the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When people ask and answer the question, well what kind of a God is God? And then they describe a God who is so disconnected from the revelation in the Bible. That he's unrecognizable. Does Job really want to contend and correct the Lord? The Lord, in effect, is saying, okay, you want to correct me? Well, then answer me. The rebuke comes from Job's foolish assertion that Job was wise enough to challenge the wisdom of God and the choices that God makes and the things that God allows or disallows. And again, when we read this book, sometimes we're overwhelmed by our sympathy for Job. 
You've already read the first two chapters. You've already watched the journey that he's taken. You've already experienced the interactions that he's had with his friend. You know about the suffering and you know about the pain and you know about the hardship. And you ask the question, well, has God in fact dealt fairly with Job? And then in moments when you're even more honest, you ask a different kind of a question. And that is, has God been fair with me? Has God been good to me? How do I explain my life? And how do I explain the family that I was born into? And how do I explain the wickedness inside of me? And how do I explain all of the evil things that either have been done to me or that I've participated in? But did Job have a better plan for his life than God had? And duh... Do you have a better plan for your life? Do you have a better solution to the problem of your sin and the reality that you're facing and the direction that you're going? Does Job embrace the false idea that he can be his own mediator and his own redeemer? And by the way, whenever you meet someone and you ask them, on what basis are you going to be accepted by God? And they say to you, well, I'm basically a good person. Then your immediate response should be, so you're on your own. You're going to face God on your own. You are going to allow your life and your circumstances and the things that you've done to be the basis on whether or not you're going to be acceptable to God. And this becomes sort of the send-off in this particular chapter. And if you don't understand what I'm about to say, then you're not going to understand God's conversation with Job because the Bible teaches that human beings can't be their own mediator or their own savior. The repeated testimony of the scripture is that human beings are not righteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. In his book, Salvation is Forever, Robert Gromaki lifts several reasons why human beings can't do it on their own, why they can't stand before God on their own, why they are in fact lost in their trespass and sin. They're lost because they reject the Bible's revelation about God and the human condition. They're lost because they disobey their own conscience, which is telling them that something's wrong. And because of man's relationship to Satan and the rebellion, and because of our relationship to sin, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing was the question that was asked in Job chapter 14 verse 4. The issue has already been asked. How is it possible for someone who is not right to become right? Ecclesiastes 7.20, for there's not a just man on the whole earth that does good and who sins not. We require a savior. One who's willing to save us and able to save us. And the reoccurring theme again in the, in the Bible is that Jesus is that Savior. And so when you're reading this passage and you're wondering, God, why are you so harsh with Job? I mean, when you think about all that Job has gone through, why do you have to be so mean? I'm going to suggest to you that the Lord isn't being mean. That he's being kind. 
what the Lord wants to do is smash all false hopes of self-salvation. The Lord wants to destroy any notion that you might have that moral goodness or religious affiliation or keeping the law or being sincere are going to be the things that will, in effect, allow you entrance into heaven. Salvation is always by blood. It's always innocent blood. It's always shed blood. It's always applied blood. Salvation is always by a person. Neither is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is always by grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, It is the gift of God always. A grace that precedes the sinner's faith and a grace that's followed by the Savior's peace. Does the God who created the heavens and the earth, who created and planned the universe, who designed all living things in our world, does he have the ability... To conceive, plan, and control all things. The testimony of the scriptures is yes. There's a subtle and sometimes not so subtle assertion that when we question God, that that's okay in this sense. Well, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on here. But sometimes that questioning becomes a sort of an assertion of our own pride. When we wag our finger at God and we say, Lord, why did you do that? Why did you allow that? I mean, I'm a a wicked person and an evil person and I would never allow such a wicked thing. The implication being that I'm wiser than God or more gracious than God. Or more moral than God. We should be the ones who need to think carefully when we do that. Many people believe that they need no input or discipline from God or anyone else for that matter. And what's about to happen might seem a little bit scary to you. Because the Lord is going to discipline Job. You know the word rebuke means to cautiously confront But God has no need to cautiously confront because he always knows exactly what's going on. He knows what he's doing. In verse 3, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. By the way, this is the first time that Job speaks. These are the first words that Job dares to speak. Remember, there's been a long litany when the Lord showed up in chapter 38 and he spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. And then he asserted his omnipotence in chapter 39. And then he gives this series of summary statements and Job says, Behold, I am vile. And by the way, the Hebrew word for vile doesn't simply mean insignificant. It doesn't simply mean 
unworthy. It means way more than that. It's very hard for us to fit the full meaning into the word. We can't fit the word self-righteous into that word vile. But it implies that. McKenna says, The snowman of self-righteousness melts before God in the confession, I'm unworthy. And the admission, I don't know. In chapter 31, verse 37, Job said, If I had an opportunity to stand before God, I would enter into his presence like a prince. You can reread it if you forgot. Chapter 31, verse 37. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. It was Job's way of saying, if I had an opportunity to stand face to face with God, I'm going to hold my head up and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. But look what he says, or rather what he doesn't say. When he says, I'm vile, note what he doesn't say. Behold, I'm a good person. See, you're laughing but because you're starting to understand. Particularly if you've ever said, I'm basically a good person. Or basically, if you've ever said, I'm not an evil person. And then you ask and answer a different kind of a question, according to whose standards and on by what basis of definition would do you use the term evil? He doesn't say, well, Lord, do what you did in the first two chapters. Compare me with every other single human being who is on the earth. And what you're going to discover that there's none like me. Just like what you already said. That I'm a good and a decent person. A person who deserves a fair hearing. A person who shouldn't be allowed to suffer. A person who doesn't understand what's happening to him. And I think you owe me an explanation. But he doesn't say that. When he says, I lay my hand over my mouth, it's an idiomatic expression in the Middle East, which means, I have nothing left to say. Putting your hand over your mouth was an act of contrition and submission and humility. It's the same word that's used in chapter 29, verse 9 in the book of Job. When Job said, there was a time before all of these horrible and terrible things happened to me that when I would go into a room, noblemen would cover their mouth with their hand. In other words, the moment that Job showed up, everyone else covered their mouth with their hand because if anything, if anyone had something important to say, it would have been Job. And in verse 5, he says, Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. It's Job's way of saying... I've already said too much. (laughs) He's broken. He's terrified. And I got to tell you something. If you ever appear before God on your own, apart from Christ, apart from Jesus, apart from his grace, 
apart from his love, apart from his mercy, and you expect to be accepted, then you too will experience an unbelievable sense of horror and terror. Job admits that he has misspoken. Job admits that he's made a terrible mistake. Job admits that questioning the Lord was not a good idea and that he's not going to do it again. What's the point? What's the lesson? Humility before God? What's the point? Human beings are for the most part clueless, unaware of their profound sinful condition. They are, for the most part, clueless and unaware of God's absolute holiness. Job promises to say no more. He's silenced and humbled. He knows that if he says anything else, it's only going to reinforce his ignorance and irreverence. And so he chooses to be silent. In the New Testament, you'll remember when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses. And there's this incredible vision that unfolds right before them. That Elijah and Moses disappear and Jesus comes back down from the mountain. And Peter, not always knowing exactly what to say, is, It's good that we're here, Lord, and let's build three tabernacles. One for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. And all of a sudden, the sky Splits and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Peter realizes, I probably should have kept my mouth shut. Did you grow up in a world where your parents used to say, Silence is golden, golden? You remember that song? But sometimes, It's silence that is the wisest choice. Warren Wiersbe, in the most practical way as he always is, says, quote, until we are silenced before God, he can't do for us what he needs to be done. As long as we defend ourselves and argue with God, he can't work for us and in us to accomplish his plan toward us, unquote. In other words, there comes times in our lives where the Lord shows up and we're trying to defend ourselves before the Lord and the Lord just goes, I need you to be quiet just for a second. I need you to zip it. I need you to be quiet. And I'll talk, and you listen. In Amos chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Therefore the prudent shall keep silence at that time, for it is an evil time. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1, it says, Keep silence before me, O islands. These are the people groups. And let people renew their strength, and let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together in in judgment, or to judgment. Job, in effect, is saying, I'm done talking. But the Lord wants to continue the conversation. And by the way, you would think, That for so many people they would go, well, why doesn't the book of Job just stop right here? You've shown up. I'm convinced. You're God. I'm not. 
I'm convinced that if there's any hope, it's going to have to be in you. I'm convinced that you created everything and that you designed everything, that you order and orchestrate the world, and I don't. I understand that you're God, and I'm I'm not. Why do we have to continue the conversation? Hasn't Job had enough? Isn't he sufficiently broken? Isn't he sufficiently repentant and sincere? And if you are reading yourself into the passage, you're going to probably be saying, he's had enough, he's had enough, he's had enough, let him go. But God doesn't let him go. Apparently, McKenna suggests, quote, he, Job, is learning to listen to God But hearing alone is not healing. God has more to say. And Job has more to learn. And I think it's an important insight. God has more to say. And Job has more to learn. Again, Wiersbe says, this is one step closer to blessing, but Job has not yet repented of the way that he talked about God. And again, once again, we pretend to know things that maybe only God knows, but the Lord continues. And the Lord apparently does have a whole lot more to say. He says in verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Remember, this is the place of storm. And says, Now prepare yourself like a man. I'm going to question you and you shall answer me. And by the way, whenever the Lord says, Man up! I'm going to question you. And you're going to answer me. You don't have to be a Bible theologian to figure this out. You're in trouble. You are in trouble. You're in trouble. He says in verse 8, Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? If you've never ever underlined a passage in your Bible, you should underline this one. Why? The word annul means to make void. It means to break. It means to dissolve. It means to destroy. What the Lord is in effect saying to Job is, would you indeed make void, break up, dissolve, destroy my judgment? Do you really think that God's plans and purposes, designs and promises are something that you should get rid of. Imagine that you're living in a world where you go, I think that there should be a lot of different ways that people should be saved. People should be able to be saved by being as nice as they possibly can. People should be able to be saved um, if they watch the Waltons all eight seasons. People should be able to be saved. And then you just add whatever it is that you think. If they make a hodge, if, if they do this, if, if they do that, would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? The idea being, are you willing to make God's judgments go away? Are you willing to condemn him? And note what he says, that you may be justified. The Lord is in effect saying, are you really, really wanting me to be wrong in order for you to be right? Can human beings make God's judgment void? Can human beings say, 
you know what, Lord, I know that the Bible says that human beings are real sinners, but what if they're basically good people and they just make mistakes? Lord, I, I, I know you say that, that whatever transgression takes place, it disqualifies us from heaven, but that doesn't make sense to me. Lord, I, I know that you seem to have assigned a place for the wicked for their rebellion and disobedience, but that seems a little harsh to me. Accusations against God and his justice are accusations against God's character. I remember a man came into my office one day and he said, I don't believe you and I don't believe the Bible and I don't care what the Bible says. And I, I literally got down and I hid underneath my desk. I, went, I, just, I just stopped the conversation and I just started. He goes, what are you doing down there? I go, I just get really nervous when people slander God like you just slandered God. I suspect it wouldn't surprise me if lightning came down from the sky and struck you dead. And it seems funny and it seems like a joke, but let me put it to you a little bit differently. Has anyone ever said something awful about you? They lied about you. They said the most horrible, terrible, wicked lie about you, and it was absolutely not true. Were you offended? Did it hurt you? Did it grieve you? Did it wound you? Now imagine that you slander God. You accuse him of being foolish, unjust, unkind, immoral. We know it's a terrible slander when we falsely accused people of things that they're not guilty of. But how can we slander God and feel no shame? Once again, Job had accused God of being unjust in chapter 6, verse 29. In chapter 27, verses 1 through 17. McKenna, in a paraphrase, has God saying, Do you refute my wisdom? Do you condemn my justice? Do you doubt my power? Do you reject my voice? We could even add, Do you do all these things in order to make yourself look good or look right? In verse 9 it says, have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like his? Now again, these aren't questions of a petulant God insisting that he have his own way. These are the statements of a self-existent being who has no equal, who in effect is asking Job, do you have the strength of God? That's what it means, do you have the arm of God? When it says, do you have the arm of God, it means, are you strong like God? And what about your voice? What does he mean by that? Do you have the ability with your voice to compel reality to bend and yield to your will? In effect, he's saying, do you have the ability? Forget about saving yourself. Do you have the ability to save the world and judge the world? I want you to think it through. If you, can, if you can't save yourself, can you save your husband, your wife, your children, your neighbor, 
we need to pause for just a moment. The Lord, in effect, is saying, do you have the strength and the power, that means the holy wrath, to do what is necessary when it comes to judging the entire world? The Lord invites Job to take his foolish idea to the extreme. Job, you've basically said that I'm not doing a good job as the creator of the universe. You've pretty much insisted that you could do a better job. Let's just pretend for a moment that you get to be the Lord of the universe. Do you remember the last time you played that when you were eight years old? I am now the Lord of the universe. All of reality and all of existence will bend to my will. If I speak to the sun, it will rise or set. If I speak to the waters, they will recede or come forth. If I speak to the animals, they'll speak back. He's in effect saying, if you want to play the role of deity, let's see how well this works out for you. Pour out your wrath on the guilty. Humble the proud. Again, the sinner might say, look, 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 I don't want to judge the whole world. As a matter of fact, if I were God, I would just say, Ollie, ollie, outs and free. Everyone who's done anything wrong, guess what? I'm over it. But what that implies is that you don't have a perfect sense of righteousness or justice or, or holiness. The sinner might say, I don't want to judge the whole world. I just want to be the judge of my own world. I just want to make the decision for myself. I want to make the decision for myself about what kind of a person I'm going to be or not be. I don't want to be bound or restricted or prohibited in any way. I just want the freedom to do what I want to do. Even if it offends God, even if it's wrong, even if it's evil, even if it's disgusting. Well, you know, to each their own. And so the Lord says... Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. You might let the passage slip past you, but let's look at it just for a moment because it's way, way interesting. Before God lets Job be the Lord and the judge, the Lord in effect is saying, you want to be the judge of the universe. Before you're the judge of the universe, put on your royal robes. Put on your majestic robes of glory and beauty. If you can do what God can do, demonstrate the fact. Clothe yourself with glory. Unleash your anger on the wicked, verse 11. Humble the proud in verse 12. Crush the wicked at the end of verse 12. Bury all of the wicked in the dust and imprison them in the darkness in verse 13. I'm going to read it for you. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Treat 
Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. The Lord, in effect, is saying, if you can robe yourself in righteousness, if you can unleash your anger on the wicked, if you can humble the the proud, if you can crush the wicked, if you can bury in the dust all the wicked and imprison them in the darkness, then I'm willing to concede that you have all of the necessary attributes to be in charge of your own life and of your own salvation. So pause for just a moment. As you look out onto this broken world and you see all of the death and all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the difficulty and all of the accusations and all of the wickedness and every wrong thing that has ever been done and every right, every innocent person who's been unjustly accused, if you could have the ability to exonerate the innocent and judge the, the wicked and make sure that justice could be done, the innocent is protected and the wicked are punished, could you do it? Do you have the ability to do it? And you say, I watch Judge Judy and I can't even figure out who's right and who's wrong. And so the Lord says, okay, let's dial it back a notch. Let's have another little test. If you can subdue Behemoth and Leviathan, well, then you might qualify to execute judgment against a sinful world. Now, again, several Bible teachers believe that the creatures described are hippopotamuses or an elephant or a water buffalo in verses 15 through 24 or a crocodile in chapter 41 verses 1 through 34. But let's read the passage for ourselves. In verses 15 through 24. And I'm going to read it quickly. It says, look now at Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. His sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food to him. And all the beasts of the yield play there. He lies under the lotus trees. In a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed the The river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. He says in verse 15, look now at Behemoth. By the way, that word, Behemoth, translates directly a Hebrew word. In the singular form, it's behemah. The word behemah means cattle. But cattle is a plural word in our own language, isn't it? If I say cattle, 
It could be singular. If, if I said, do you have a ranch? And you say, I have cattle. And how many cattle do you have? One. <laughs> okay. Usually we think of cattle being more than one. In the plural, the word is behemoth. And that's what the word is here. It doesn't seem to describe a singular beast. It seems to describe a super beast. Some early church fathers thought it was an elephant. That's what Aquinas thought. Others, a buffalo. Most hippopotamuses like Gleason Archer and and, uh, Zuck and even Warren Wearsby. Some suggest that it's an extinct animal. Some suggest that it's a mythological animal. When he says, look at the behemoth which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. He's describing some sort of animal that was made when he created human beings. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21 through 31, in that long series it says, So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing, which the water teem, and there was evening and morning the fifth day. So God created man in his own image, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. So whatever this beast is, it's a beast that's created by God. And what does the text tell us about the beast? It's powerful. It's herbivorous. That means it eats grass. It's an amphibian. It's equally comfortable in the water or on the land. It says in verse 16, See now his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. Now the hippo enthusiast takes this verse to mean The hippopotamus. Okay, hit it, hippo. There's our hippopotamus. Some scholars think, okay, this is a hippopotamus. But hippopotamuses, do they have a tail like a cedar? Let's get another shot of the hippo. A less flattering shot. Oh, we didn't get all of her tail in, did we? But by the way, when you look at her derriere does it look like she has a tail like a cedar now again Hebrew scholars will say well it doesn't mean her tail is actually a cedar it means that it waves like a cedar you know if you see the hippopotamus wagging its tail like a dog and I go you know I'm not quite convinced what creature has a huge tail like a cedar yeah look Oh, now let's read it. Look at Behemoth. See now his strength is in his hips. And the power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is the first in the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. By the way, could you get close enough to a hippo to probably kill it? I think that you probably could. He is the first in the ways of God. Does the hippopotamus 
seem to be that? Again, let's ask ourselves what the text is saying. First, in the ways of God, verse 19. What does that mean? What does first in the ways of God mean? I'm going to suggest to you that after a careful study, as I'm trying to figure out what verse 19 means, I think it could mean a reference to the size and strength of the animal under consideration. A hippopotamus is impressive, but a diplodocus is way more impressive. Let's do the next one. Yeah. By the way, how difficult would it be to approach that animal? Look what it says. Surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies in the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth. Imagine a picture of a mighty river bringing its mighty waterfall and it flies right in the face of the the, 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 the the diplodocus. What is the diplodocus going to do? It's going to go. Keep bring it on, bring it on. Is there any amount of water that's going to make the diplodocus go? I've had enough. I don't think so. Though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces with a snare. This creature, whatever the creature that's being described here, is a, is a creature that can't be intimidated or subdued. The creature can't be controlled. In effect, the Lord is saying, if you can capture and subdue this great creature, I might be willing to concede that you have the power and the wisdom to judge the world The point of the passage, oddly enough, isn't to discuss the existence of dinosaurs, although I believe that this is the best explanation of the creature being described. I think the point of the passage is to express the utter inability of humans in their weakness to control certain creatures. Let's play a familiar clip from a movie that maybe some of you have seen. Okay, pay close attention. Get into the Jeep. Run for your life. Oh, wait, what's behind you? First gear. Second gear. to make is could you create this and if you could create it could you control this 
And since you can't create it, and since you can't control it, and since you've already conceded that you can't create it, and you can't control it, how in the world do you think that you can control your circumstances, or your wickedness, or your ability to go to heaven? You know, at gotquestions.org, in their article entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Dinosaurs?, I'm going to read the paragraph to you. Nearly every ancient civilization has some sort of art depicting giant reptilian creatures. Petroglyphs, artifacts, even little clay figurines found in North America resemble modern depictions of dinosaurs. Rock carvings in South America depict men riding diplodocus-like creatures and amazingly bear the familiar images of triceratops-like, pterodactyl-like, tyrannosaurus rex-like creatures. Roman mosaics, Mayan pottery, Babylonian city walls all testify to man's transcultural, geographically unbounded fascination with these creatures. Sober accounts like those of Marco Polo in Il Milione Mingle with fantastic tales of treasure hoarding beasts in addition to the substantial amount of anthropic and historical evidences for the coexistence of dinosaurs and man. There are physical evidences like the fossilized footprints of humans and dinosaurs found together in North America and West Central Asia, unquote. We have cave drawings in the Grand Canyon. We have carvings in Central America. We have eyewitness accounts in Italy, Ireland, but we don't necessarily trust the Irish because, you know, maybe they were just drinking a little bit more than they should. Arabia, Australia, Aborigines. Why do ancient people report giant reptile creatures roaming the earth and flying in the sky? Michael Snyder, in a recent article, wrote, quote, A fossil bed in China that's being called the Jurassic Park has yielded perhaps the greatest dinosaur soft tissue discovery of all time. According to media reports, nearly complete skeletons have been discovered that include skin and feathers. But of course, if these dinosaurs are really 160 million years old, that should be absolutely impossible. Needless to say, this shocking discovery is once again going to have paleontologists scrambling to find a way to prop up the popular myths that they've been promoting. What they have been telling us is simply doesn't fit the facts. The truth is that the latest find is even more evidence that dinosaurs are far, far younger than we've traditionally been taught. We have found Tyrannosaurus soft tissue in Montana. We have found dinosaur soft tissue in China. Recently, there was a Triceratops horn that was unearthed and a person lost his job as he was conducting tests, pointing out that the preservation of the of the tissue could possibly take place over thousands of years, but not over millions of years. And so people often will ask me, well, are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? No, dinosaur is a word that was invented in the early 1800s to describe giant reptilian creatures. But there is a word that's used in the Bible that describes giant reptilian creatures. It's the Hebrew word tanin. Tanin is used several times to translate the word dragon. And if you've ever seen an image of a dragon, does it look like a giant reptilian creature? 
You see, I think part of the point that the Lord is making in this particular passage is, could you create this creature? And if you could create it, could you control it? What do you suppose Job's answer is? Yeah, Job might say, well, thousands of years from now, Jurassic Park is going to take place. They're going to find a, a fly and a piece of amber, and they're going to remove some DNA, and they're going to maybe mate it with some sort of reptilian thing, and they're going to recreate through the process of cloning these gigantic creatures. And remember, the whole point of Jurassic Park is, if, even if we could do such a thing, is it a good idea? People who question and criticize and scandalize God are in effect asserting their right to be God in their own lives. And you see, I think that that's the point of this passage. There are people who believe God is either unfair or unjust or limited in his power. There are those who are not satisfied with the problems the pain, and the suffering. And they want answers. And in this passage, the Lord invites us to see the issue from God's perspective. We're invited to see a God who creates the universe and then controls the universe and then cares for the creatures in the universe. And has Job come to the place where he sees God's power and the harmony of God's creation and the justice of his way and the sufficiency of his grace? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that that's why the conversation continues in chapter 40. In chapter 41, the conversation continues because the Lord is inviting a person who might still be thinking that they don't want to come to God on God's terms. And if there is a God, they don't want to come to him on the basis of Jesus and on the basis of his shed blood and on the basis of his sacrifice. You know, we like to think that our knowledge and our technology are growing. But even in spite of all of the amazing progress that we've made as human beings on the planet, the Lord invites us to consider that in light of who he is and in light of what he's done and in light of what he continues to do, we should have a sense not of our own greatness, but of God's greatness and our smallness. Because in spite of knowledge and in spite of technology, we still haven't been able to come up with the solution to sin and death. We haven't come up with a solution to how to be exonerated in God's great court. We haven't come up with a solution to how do we satisfy his holiness and his justice on our own. And so God does what you all know God has done. He sends a son. He sends him to die. He sends him to a world and a universe that is broken and hurt. And he comes back to life.
And he promises hope, forgiveness, and salvation. You see, I think that Behemoth becomes a type and a picture not of what's good, but of what's evil in this sense. Can you subdue this creature? The answer seems to be no. What does that great reptile dragon often represent in the Bible? I have to admit, I love dinosaurs. But if we go purely on a biblical image basis, the great reptile represents the great adversary to God. The originator of rebellion and sin and death. And it becomes, I think, a type and a picture. Can we control sin in our life, apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from his promises, apart from the revelation. The Bible seems to indicate, no, you need all of that. And so to outrun what's gone wrong inside of you is like sprinting away from a Tyrannosaurus Rex that's pretty much sees you as a snack. And then next week, we'll hear one more confession from Job as he acknowledges God's sovereignty because I think that he needed to hear this. And sometimes we need to hear what we are at first unwilling to hear. That we'll never be a good God. And that we'll never be an adequate savior. And that we can never stand before God on, a, on, our, on our own. We need Jesus. Speaking of that, let's pray. We're going to hand out the communion elements. I just ask that you all keep them until we have a chance to partake together. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing passage. Lord, we know that Russian scientists using carbon-14 dating have sampled dinosaur bones. And the unbelieving atheistic Russian scientists have said that they have to be less than 30,000 years old. And, and they're not creation scientists by any stretch of the imagination. Heavenly Father, we're left with this inundation of reality that what the Bible says about the Creator... And creation seems to be attested by reality. What the Bible says about the human condition and the problem of sin and the need for a savior seems reflected in the very broken world in which we live in. And Heavenly Father, for that man who is filled with fear and for that woman who is bound with a reoccurring doubt, Lord, I pray that you would forever dismiss any idea that they're better off on their own, that they're better off living their lives apart from Christ and apart from his love and apart from his grace and apart from his mercy. That for good reason, Job longs for a mediator and a kinsman redeemer. And Job comes to the painful conclusion that it can't be him. 
that in order to join hands with God and to join hands with Job, it's going to require someone even more amazing, insightful than even Job. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray that we would be encouraged that if ever there was a Savior who could be trusted, it's Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.